Chapter Thirteen of the Spanish Brothers by Deborah Alcock. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Thirteen Seville. There is a multitude around, responsive to my prayer. I hear the voice of my desire resounding everywhere. A. L. Waring. Don Carlos felt surprised on returning to Seville to find the circle in which he had been wont to move exactly as he left it. His absence appeared to him a great deal longer than it really was. Moreover, there lurked in his mind an undefined idea that a period so fraught with momentous change to him could not have passed without change over the heads of others. But the worldly only seemed more worldly, the frivolous more frivolous, the vain more vain than ever. Around the presence of Doña Beatrice there still hung a sweet dangerous fascination against which he struggled, and in the strength of his new and mighty principle of action struggled successfully. Still, for the sake of his own peace, he longed to find some fair pretext for making his home elsewhere than beneath his uncle's roof. One great pleasure awaited his return, a letter from Juan. It was the second he had received, the first having merely told of his brother's safe arrival at the headquarters of the royal army in Cambrai. Don Juan had obtained his commission just in time for active service in the brief war between France and Spain that immediately followed the accession of Philip II. And now, though he said not much of his exploits, it was evident that he had already begun to distinguish himself by the prompt and energetic courage which was a part of his character. Moreover, a signal piece of good fortune had fallen to his lot. The Spaniards were then engaged in the siege of St. Quentin. Before the works were quite completed, the French general, the celebrated Admiral Coligny, managed to throw himself into the town by a brilliant and desperate coup de main. Many of his heroic band were killed or taken prisoner, however, and among the latter was a gentleman of rank and fortune, a member of the admiral's suite, who surrendered his sword into the hands of young Don Juan Alvarez. Juan was delighted with his prize, as well he might be. Not only was the distinction an honorable one for so young a soldier, but the ransom he might hope to receive would serve very materially to smooth his pathway to the attainment of his dearest wishes. Carlos was now able to share his brother's joy with unselfish sympathy. With a peculiar kind of pleasure, not quite unmixed with superstition, he recalled Juan's boyish words, more than once repeated, When I go to the wars, I shall make some great prince, or duke, my prisoner. They had found a fair, if not exactly literal, fulfillment, and that so early in his career, and the belief that had grown up with him from childhood was strengthened thereby. Juan would surely accomplish everything upon which his heart was set. Certainly he would find his father, if that father should prove to be, after all, in the land of the living. Carlos was warmly welcomed back by his relatives, at least by all of them save one. To a mild temper and amiable disposition he united the great advantage of rivaling no man and interfering with no man's career. At the same time he had a well-defined and honorable career of his own, in which he bid fair to be successful, so that he was not despised, but regarded as a credit to the family. The solitary exception to the favorable sentiments he inspired was found in the bitter disdain which Gonsalvo, with scarcely any attempt at disguise, exhibited towards him. This was painful to him, both because he was sensitively alive to the opinions of others, and also because he actually preferred Gonsalvo, notwithstanding his great and glaring faults, to his more calculating and worldly-minded brothers. Force of any kind possesses a real fascination for an intellectual and sympathetic but rather weak character and this fascination grows in intensity when the weaker has a reason to pity and a desire to help the stronger. 
It was not altogether grace, therefore, which checked the proud words that often rose to the lips of Carlos in answer to his cousin's sneers or sarcasms. He was not ignorant of the cause of Gonsalvo's contempt for him. It was Gonsalvo's creed that a man who deserved the name always got what he wanted or died in the attempt, unless, of course, absolutely insuperable physical obstacles interfered, as they did in his own case. As he knew well enough what Carlos wanted before his departure from Seville, the fact of his quietly resigning the prize, without even an effort to secure it, was final with him. One day, when Carlos had returned a forbearing answer to some taunt, Doña Inez, who was present, took occasion to apologize for her brother as soon as he had quitted the room. Carlos liked Doña Inez much better than her still unmarried sister, because she was more generous and considerate to Beatrice. "'You are very good, amigo mio,' she said, "'to show so great forbearance to my poor brother.' and I cannot think wherefore he should treat you so uncourteously. But he is often rude to his brothers, sometimes even to his father. I fear it is because he suffers. Though rather less helpless than he was six months ago, he seems really more frail and sickly. Aids in me, that is too true. And have you heard his last whim? He tells us he's given up physicians for ever. He is almost as ill in opinion of them as—forgive me, cousin—of priests— could you not persuade him to consult your friend, Dr. Cristobal? I have tried, but in vain. To speak the truth, cousin, she added, drawing nearer to Carlos and lowering her voice, there is another cause that has helped to make him what he is. No one knows or even guesses aught of it but myself. I was ever his favorite sister. If I tell you, will you promise the strictest secrecy? Carlos did so, wondering a little what his cousin would think could she surmise the weightier secrets which were burdening his own heart. You have heard of the marriage of Doña Juana de Zeres y Bojorcas with Don Francisco de Vargas. Yes, and I account Don Francisco a very fortunate man. Are you acquainted with the young lady's sister, Doña Maria de Bojorcas? I have met her, a fair, pale, queenly girl. She is not fond of gaiety, but very learned and very pious, as I have been told. You will scarce believe me, Don Carlos, when I tell you that pale, quiet girl is Gonsalvo's choice, his dream, his idol. How she contrived to gain that fierce, eager young heart I know not, but hers it is, and hers alone. Of course he had passing fancies before, but she was his first serious passion, and she will be his last. Carlos smiled. Red fire and white marble, he said. But after all, the fiercest fire could not feed on marble. It must die out in time. From the first, Gonsalvo had not the shadow of a chance. Doña Inez replied with an expressive flutter of her fan. I have not the least idea whether the young lady even knows he loves her. But it matters not. We are Alvarez de Menea. Still we cannot expect a grande of the first order to give his daughter to a younger son of our house. Even before that unlucky bull-feast. Now, of course, he himself would be the first to say, Pineapple colonels are not for monkeys, nor fair ladies for crippled caballeros. And yet, you understand? I do, said Carlos, and in truth he did understand, far better than Doña Inez imagined. She turned to leave the room, but suffered again to say kindly, I trust, my cousin, your own health has not suffered from your residence among those bleak, inhospitable mountains. Don Garcia tells me he's seen you twice since your return, coming forth late in the evening from the dwelling of our good senior doctor. There was sufficient reason for these visits. Before they parted, de Ceso had asked Carlos if he would like an introduction to a person in Seville who could give him further instruction upon the subjects they had discussed together. 
The author having been thankfully accepted, he was furnished with a note addressed, much to his surprise, to the physician Losada, and the connection thus begun was already proving a priceless boon to Carlos. But nature had not designed him for a keeper of secrets. The color mounted rapidly to his cheek as he answered, I am flattered by my lady cousin's solicitude for me, but I thank God my health is as good as ever. In truth, Dr. Cristobal is a man of learning and a pleasant companion, and I enjoy an hour's conversation with him. Moreover, he has some rare and valuable books, which he is kind enough to lend me. He is certainly very well bred for a man of his station, said Doña Inez condescendingly. Carlos did not resume his attendance upon the lectures of Fray Constantino at the College of Doctrine, but when the voice of the eloquent preacher was heard in the cathedral, he was never absent. He had no difficulty now in recognizing the truths that he loved so well, covered with a thin veil of conventional phraseology. All mention not necessary of dogmas particularly Romish was avoided. Unless when the congregation were warned earnestly— though in terms well studied and jealously guarded, against risking their salvation upon indulgences or ecclesiastical pardons. The vanity of trusting to their own works was shown also, and in every sermon Christ was faithfully held up before the sinner as the one all-sufficient Saviour. Carlos listened always with rapt attention, usually with keen delight. Often would he look around him upon the sea of earnest upturned faces, saying within himself, Many of these brethren and sisters have found Christ many more are seeking him and at the thought his heart would thrill with thankfulness but even at that moment some word from the preacher's lips might change his joy into a chill of apprehension it frequently happened that fray constantino borne onward by the torrent of his own eloquence was betrayed into uttering some sentiment so very nearly heretical as to make his hearer tingle with the peculiar sense of pain that is caused by seeing one rush heedlessly to the verge of a precipice I often thank God for the stupidity of evil men and the simplicity of good ones. Carlos said to his new friend Losada, after one of these dangerous discourses, for by this time what de Seso had first led him to suspect had become a certainty with him. He knew himself a heretic, a terrible consciousness to sink into the heart of any man in those days, especially in Catholic Spain. Fortunately, the revelation had come to him gradually, and still more gradually came the knowledge of all that it involved. Yet those were sorrowful hours in which he first felt himself cut off from every hallowed association of his childhood and youth, from the long chain of revered tradition, which was all he knew of the past, from the vast brotherhood of the church visible, that mighty organization, pervading all society, leavening all thought, controlling all custom, ruling everything in this world, even if not in the next. His own past life was shattered. The ambitions he had cherished were gone. The studies he had excelled and delighted in were proved, for the most part, worse than vain. It is true that he believed, even still, that he might accept priestly ordination from the hands of Rome, for the idolatry of the mass was amongst the things not yet revealed to him. But he could no longer hope for honor or preferment, or what men call a career, in the church. Joy enough would it be if he were permitted, in some obscure corner of the land, to tell his countrymen of a Saviour's love and perpetual watchfulness, extreme caution, and the most judicious management would be necessary to preserve him, as hitherto they had preserved Fray Constantino, from the grasp of the Holy Inquisition. To us who read that word in the lurid light that martyr fires kindled after this period have flung upon it, it may seem strange that Carlos was not more a prey to fear of the perils entailed by his heresy. But so slowly did he pass out of the stage in which he believed himself still a sincere Catholic, into that in which he shudderingly acknowledged 
that he was in very truth a Lutheran, that the shock of the discovery was wonderfully broken to him. Nor did he think the danger that menaced him either near or pressing, so long as he conducted himself with reserve and prudence. It is true that this reserve involved a degree of secrecy, if not of dissimulation, that was fast becoming very irksome. Formerly the kind of fencing, fainting, and doubling into which he was often forced would rather have pleased him as affording for the exercise of ingenuity. But his moral nature was growing so much more sensitive that he began to recoil from slight departures from truth, in which heretofore he would only have seen a proper exercise of the advantage which a keen and quick intellect possesses over dull ones. Moreover, he longed to be able to speak freely to others of the things which he himself found so precious. Though quite sufficiently afraid of pain and danger, the thought of disgrace was still more intolerable to him. Keener than any suffering he had yet known, except the pang of renouncing Beatrix, was the consciousness that all amongst whom he lived, and who now respected and loved him, would, if they guessed the truth, turn away from him with unutterable scorn and loathing. One day, when walking in the street with his aunt and Doña Sancha, they turned down a side street to avoid meeting the death procession of a murderer on his way to the scaffold. The crime for which he had suffered had been notorious, and with voluble exclamations of horror and congratulations at getting safely out of the way to which the ladies gave expression, were mingled prayers for the soul of the miserable man. If they all knew, thought Carlos, as the slight, closely veiled forms clung trustingly to him for protection, they would think me worse, more degraded than yon wretched being. They pity him, they pray for him. Me, they would only loathe and execrate and juan my beloved my honoured brother what will he think this last thought was one that haunted him most frequently and troubled him most deeply but had he nothing to counterbalance these pangs of fear and shame these manifold dark misgivings he had much first and best he had the peace that passeth all understanding shed abroad in his heart its light did not grow pale and faint with time on the other hand it increased in brightness and steadiness as new truths arose like stars upon his soul every new truth being in itself a new joy to him. Moreover, he found keen enjoyment in the communion of saints. Great was his surprise when, after sufficiently instructing him in private, and satisfactorily testing his sincerity, Losada cautiously revealed to him the existence of a regularly organized Lutheran church in Seville, of which he himself was actually the pastor. He invited Carlos to attend its meetings, which were held, with due precaution, and usually after nightfall, in the house of a lady of rank, Doña Isabella de Vena. Carlos readily accepted the perilous invitation, and with deep emotion took his place amongst the band of called, chosen, and faithful men and women, every one of whom, as he believed, shared the same joys and hopes that he did. They were not at all such a little band as he expected to find them, nor were they, with very few exceptions, the poor of this world. If that bright southern land, so rich in all that kindles the imagination, eventually, to her own ruin, rejected the truth of God, at least she offered upon his altar some of her choicest and fairest flowers. Many of those who met in Doña Isabella's upper room were chief men, and devout and honorable women. Talent, learning, excellence of every kind was largely represented there. So also was the Sangre Azul, the boast of the proud Spanish grandees. One of the first faces that Carlos recognized was the sweet, thoughtful one of the young Doña Maria de Bojoques, whose precocious learning and accomplishments had often been praised in his earring, and in whom he now had a new and peculiar interest. There were two noblemen of the first order, Don Domingo de Guzman, son of the Duke of Medina Sidonia, and Don Juan Ponce de Leon, son of the Count of Balen. Carlos had often heard of the munificent charities of the latter, 
who had actually embarrassed his estates by his unbounded liberality to the poor. But while Ponce de Leon was thus laboring to relieve the sorrows of others, a deep sadness brooded over his own spirit. He was wont to go forth by night and pace up and down the great stone platform in the Prado San Sebastian that bore the ghastly name of the Quemadero, or burning place, while in his heart the shadow of death, the darkest shadow of the dreadest death, was struggling with the light of immortality. Did the rest of that devoted band share the agony of apprehension that filled those lonely midnight hours with passionate prayer? Some amongst them did, no doubt. But with most, the circumstances and occupations of daily life wove, with their multitudinous slender threads, a veil dense enough to hide, or at least to soften, the perils of their situation. The Protestants of Seville contrived to pass their lives and do their work side by side with other men. They moved amongst their fellow-citizens and were not recognized. They even married and were given in marriage, though all the time there fell upon their daily paths the shadow of the grim old fortress where the Holy Inquisition held its awful secret court. But then, at this period, the Holy Inquisition was by no means exhibiting its usual terrible activity. The Inquisitor-General, Fernando de Valdez, Archbishop of Seville, was an old man of seventy-four, relentless when roused, but not particularly enterprising. Moreover, he was chiefly occupied in amassing enormous wealth from his rich and numerous church performance. Hitherto the fires of St. Dominic had been kindled for Jews and Moors. Only one Protestant had suffered death in Spain, and Valladolid, not Seville, had been the scene of his martyrdom. Seville, indeed, had witnessed two notable prosecutions for Lutheranism, that of Rodrigo de Valer and that of Juan Gil, commonly called Dr. Egidius. But Valer had only been sent to a monastery to die while, by a disgraceful artifice, retraction had been attained from Megidius. During the years that had passed since then, the holy office had appeared to slumber. Victims who refused to eat pork or kept Sabbath on Saturday were growing scarce for obvious reasons. And not yet had the wild beast, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, begun to devour a noble prey. Did the monster, gorged with human blood, really slumber in his den? Or did he only assume the attitude and appearance of slumber, as some wild beasts are said to do, to lure his unwary victims within the reach of his terrible crouch and spring? No one can certainly tell, but however it may have been, we doubt not the master used the breathing time thus afforded his church to prepare and polish many a precious gem, destined to shine through all ages in his crown of glory. End of chapter 13